Welcome to Critical Window, a podcast from the Alliance for Excellent Education that explores the rapid changes happening in the body and the brain during adolescence and what these changes mean for educators, policymakers, and communities. This week on Critical Window, we're learning more about the opioid crisis, how it affects adolescent students, and how educators can support students impacted by the crisis. Dr. David Patterson Silverwolf is a professor at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis, a faculty scholar in the Washington University Institute for Public Health, and a faculty affiliate in the Center for Violence and Injury Prevention. At the Brown School, he teaches substance abuse courses, serves on training faculty, and chairs the American Indian and Alaska Native Concentration in the Master of Social Work program. He's the director of the Community Academic Partnership on Addiction, which works with several St. Louis-based organizations to bring science to addiction services. Dr. Patterson Silverwolf has over 15 years of experience providing clinical services in the substance abuse disorder treatment field. He investigates how empirically supported interventions are implemented in community-based services and factors that improve underrepresented minority college students' academic success and American Indian and Alaska Native health and wellness, particularly issues related to college retention. He was recently appointed to the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on Medication-Assisted Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder. Welcome to the show, Dr. Patterson Silverwolf. Thank you. I would like to set the stage before we get into questions. While the opioid epidemic has received a great deal of press coverage and has been repeatedly called out as a top priority of both the Obama and Trump administrations, I think it's good to revisit some facts and figures to appreciate the scale of this issue. According to a 2014 report, A Nation in Pain, the U.S. consumes approximately 80% of the world's prescription opioid drugs, while making up only 5% of the world's population. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, said that nearly two-thirds, 42,000, or 66%, obviously, of drug overdoses in 2016 involved prescription opioids, illicit opioids, or both, which was an increase from 27% in 2015. In comparison to those 42,000 deaths, 38,000 individuals die in car crashes or car-related injuries in 2016. According to the CDC, opioid overdoses continued to rise from 2016 to 2017 by 30 percent across 45 states, and it's been estimated that this opioid-related cost exceeds $78 billion for the U.S. economy. So needless to say, this is a crisis and a growing one. Could you explain how we got to this point as a nation? Right, so thank you. And um, so the latest numbers uh, of ODs are about 70,000. And so we're up to about 70,000 and continuing. So I think how we got to this problem uh, depends on who you ask. And let me just say I'm here speaking as myself, on no, not behalf of any other person or community. Uh, so I would say it's uh, a, a few issues. One, pharmaceutical companies have a, a, a big responsibility uh, in this epidemic. And if you've watched 60 Minutes or the news, uh, you'll see that uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, pumped out a lot of opioids into our communities. There was a, just on 60 Minutes last night, there was a, again, they reported a small town in uh, West Virginia had millions of pills uh, shipped to that one small town. It had a few thousand people who lived there. And so pharmaceutical companies have a responsibility, uh, but uh, also prescribers. And how do you deal with people who say that they have pain? And a lot of times uh, doctors are in a position 
to either tell their customers, and that's how they see patients now as customers. They uh, went to a rating of uh, how satisfied are you as a physician. And so are you going to upset your customer or are you going to uh, do something for them that will keep them coming, coming back? And so when patients or customers say that they have pain, obviously the next move is to prescribe medication. There's other people who say the responsibility lies with those who take the medication. And in some sense, that could be true. But these are very addictive medications. Uh, and so there's a lot of data that show once you start taking these medications, it changes your brain and you quickly become addicted to these. This epidemic is impacting individuals, families, schools, communities across the nation, as, as you said. Are there areas of the country or specific demographic groups that are more at risk of substance abuse, specifically use of opioids? If so, where and whom? So I would say uh, large amounts of people who express pain uh, obviously are prescribed uh, opioids and they become addicted to them. Uh, not all of them, uh, but a lot of them do. But I would say ground zero for America's uh, addiction is uh, West Virginia. Uh, they have more uh, ODs than any other state in, the, in, our, in our country. But nobody's immune to this. There used to be this idea that uh, back several years ago that this was an urban problem uh, by minority folks. Uh, now we've seen on the news that... Uh, Young non-minorities are dying from this uh, crisis, this epidemic. And, uh, and so it's, it's spread across um, our communities to where anybody uh, could really be impacted by this. But uh, a lot of older age folks are, are high risk. Uh, uh, and obviously uh, minority communities, underserved communities, uh, underserved communities are, are or high risk for this problem. So you've personally dealt with substance abuse from early on in your childhood into your 20s. Could you take a moment to, sh to share your story for those who aren't familiar? Sure, so, um, you know, there's still some hesitation about uh, me or, or anybody else uh, sharing widely that they're a person in recovery. There's still a lot of stigma around it uh, and uh, even me now, you know, I'm saying reaching 60, uh, and a tenured professor, uh, there's still some reluctance to talk about this part of my life. And so um, uh, I can say I grew up in a, in a home with a father that uh, was an alcoholic and uh, very violent. Uh, and uh, you grow up in a... Speaking for me personally, you grow up in a home like that, you have these issues, you start try to figure out why these things are happening to me, uh, what's wrong with me. I've always felt like I was a square peg in a round hole. Um, I would look out on the world and everybody looked good but me. And I would compare my internal turmoil to people's external life and think, boy, everybody looks like they're doing okay but me. Uh, and so it's easy to, to be talked into trying different, what we would consider medications and, uh, to make yourself feel, make myself feel better or the same or to fit in. And so I was taught very young on how to drink alcohol. Uh, I, was, 
I was allowed to smoke cigarettes. Uh, and so um, it was a, I don't want to say it was a predetermined path, but it made my path a lot easier to tr continue to take risk with other drugs. Uh, and before too long, I was taking medications. I had prescription drugs. I was smoking marijuana, drinking alcohol. Um, and it, it just led to a life where I couldn't imagine my life with or without alcohol or drugs. And so uh, I eventually went to treatment. Uh, I was 26. I was went the old-fashioned way. I was forced to go and uh, uh, was allowed to... Uh, with a very structured program allowed to uh, find my path into recovery. Well, well, thank you for sharing. We really appreciate you being open and, and I'm sure other folks who um, may or may not be able to relate, but it, it's, I think it says a lot that you're able to be open about that. We appreciate it again. You started getting into uh, how you eventually overcame your substance abuse issues. What other individuals or support systems helped, helped you do that? Right. So uh, for me, and I think for a lot of people, uh, you have to, uh, I had to reinvent myself. It was hard for me to uh, be a different person, uh, continuing to do the same things that I always done. And so uh, uh, there's a saying that says, if you want to change who you are, the first thing you have to change is your thinking. You can't be a different person thinking the same things. And so um, in order to change my thinking, I had to get around other people that had different thought processes than what led me to a, a life of uh, alcohol and drug use. And so I needed a different community, a sober community, someone that, that uh, folks that could teach me how to do typical things, how to go through my life without reaching back and reaching for certain medications and uh, trying to live life on life's terms, which is hard to do. You know, life is pretty tough. And so, um, uh, and people need certain medications even to get through life. You know, a lot of times I wake up in the morning and think, I need coffee. <laughs> the simple thing is coffee. And, um, and so um, it took a, uh, a number of, I would say, months and years to uh, sort of clean up the wreckage of my past and learn how to live life uh, in an honest uh, and honorable uh, way. And this was an opportunity for me to reconnect with my culture mm. uh, as well. You know, when I was young and drinking, I, I didn't care much about my people or what they did or who they came from or who they are or what they believed. Uh, but it was after I got clean and sober that uh, I was able to make a full circle and, and uh, be, begin to learn from my uncles, uh, from my uncle and uh, my people. Uh, who we are and what we stood for. And again, just for those who aren't familiar, your, your people you're, ref you're referring to, uh, I'll, I'll let you speak on it, of course. Sure. So Native American, uh, American Indian. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, my folks are both Irish and, and uh, Native. And so um, I knew a whole lot about the Irish way of life. Uh, and it took me a number of years to, uh, to understand my Native uh, culture. Mm. So looking back on that time in your life and, and beyond that, how did all these experiences shape your views on the challenges that we face with, the opio with opioid abuse and substance abuse, particularly in adolescence, because much of this was taking place um, during your adolescence and the challenges our, our nation faces with this crisis? Right. So it's, a, it's complex, right? It's, uh, it's a huge challenge 
especially an adolescent where you're trying to figure things out. So I have teenage boys now who, you know, have, have never, you know, seen me, you know, drunk or on drugs and, and they understand the, the, the uh, addiction and, and all of those things. Uh, and still, even with that, they're trying to find their way, uh, who they are. Young people who, are, who might come from homes where there's alcohol and drugs or violence and those kind of things are trying to do the same things that I was uh, trying to do. And unfortunately, I think oftentimes there's, an, there's a path to, uh, to where alcohol and drugs, uh, you know, it worked for me. And for young adults, it's sort of like, oh, um, this changed me. This makes me feel better. This is, uh, and so uh, that's easy to continue to rely on. And I think with just America, we're used to having pills pitched at us to solve our problems. We're, the only, we're one of two countries that allow pharmaceutical companies to pitch right to us with commercials, right? And if you've ever watched these commercials about all these medications, they go through these side effects that if you listen to them, they're, they're uh, like shocking. But the commercial has people walking dogs and on beaches, right, where it, it distracts you from those side effects. And so uh, we're used to saying, hey, go ask your doctor what pills are available to fix this thing in you. And I think that's, that's hard to stop for us. I, I do want to say I think your story is is not only incredible, uh, again, thank you for sharing it. It's really inspiring uh, and it demonstrates what we know about the, the science of, of adolescent learning. Adolescence is a time where young people have immense potential and there's a great deal of change happening in both the body and the brain, which really makes it a time of opportunity and risk. Uh, but your story shows that a lot can still be determined in, in the trajectory of a young person's life and that we should never give up supporting them uh, no matter what challenges they face during that period. Uh, as you know, on this podcast and at the Alliance for Excellent Education, we focus on the period, developmental period of adolescence. So how does substance abuse and specifically opioid abuse uh, during adolescence compare to other age demographics? Right. So I would say um, on the developing brain, this is a uh, addiction, substance use disorder. The, the, the term is substance use disorder. Uh, it is a brain illness. It is a brain disease. And so uh, opioids changes your brain, uh, just like alcohol. Uh, and it can change it permanently. There are some uh, changes in the brain that can never come back to, to originally how Mother Nature intended, intended it. Uh, and so for opioids, let, let me say um, uh, alcohol is still the number one killer. Uh, of Americans. It kills uh, more people than uh, drugs combined. And uh, for young folks, for adolescents, most of the time it's tobacco and alcohol that's first uh, tried. And uh, I don't want to say they're gateway drugs or anything is a gateway drug, but, but, um, uh, but I'll just stop to say that most substance that are used in adolescence is tobacco and, and, and alcohol. And, and trying to do all the things that adolescents need to do, go to school, be on time, study, all those certain things, it is an, an, a barrier to those things of success. So, and you started answering this, then 
are there other ways that we should be aware of how opioids are affecting their physical health or their development, their, their brain development, their ability to learn? Right. So I think, um, you know, our schools are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Teachers are overwhelmed. Um, and I think in a lot of states, we've removed uh, social workers from schools. Uh, we've removed a lot of things from schools that we would think would be healthy. Um, I would say um, any school that is aware that a young person is, is in a home where there's uh, known alcohol or uh, alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, drug substance use disorder, uh, violence, those are high risk, uh, should be a trigger for something uh, for young people. Uh, to, to live in those types of homes uh, is risky. And, and uh, it's not so much that the adolescent has an alcohol or drug problem. Uh, a lot of times it's their social environment uh, that should be assessed. And then if there is alcohol or drug use, then the appropriate diagnosis, if there is one, or treatment needs to be uh, thought about. I would love for you to dive a little bit more into what you were just talking about. It was a nice segue into the next question I was going to ask, which is that the opioid crisis isn't, and, and any substance abuse isn't just limited to students who are users, but also students who have parents or guardians, siblings, family members, or friends who are, uh, who are users themselves. So, so how does it, having an opioid user uh, or, or a substance abuse user in their social circle, what does that type of impact does that have on, on students' life? Right. So... Um just an ex example, you probably might do this too. I watch these videos where um, uh, the father or the mom are, are off at war, and they show these videos where they surprise a young person with their, with their mom coming home and how emotional and how uh, relieved young people are to see their, see their loved ones. Uh, with 72,000 people a year ODing or dying, uh, along with ODing, um, to see their loved ones uh, in jeopardy of harm uh, has a great impact on young people. Uh, oftentimes they don't know how to express that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these stressors, just these stressors, uh, with, and young folks not knowing how to uh, verbalize those things, it's difficult to broach that or to figure out which one of these kids in this middle uh, school building uh, are, are in need of our help. And it's very difficult. Uh, in, in a community where there's harm to one, there's harm, it affects everybody. Mm -hmm. And so if there is an OD or if there's a, a substance use disorder in somebody's house, you can't watch the news without realizing that this leads to a disastrous ending. And young people are scared. I was always scared for my dad, although... Uh, I didn't appreciate what he did to our family. There was still this nervousness that, that it was going to end badly. Mm. Yeah. So you're the director of the Community Academic Partnership on Addiction. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, it's CAPA for short. Uh, mm. Could you just tell us a little bit more about CAPA and the type of work it's, that it undertakes? Sure. So, um, uh, so I have some research, and uh, my research is about how to bring science and data and technology to frontline community-based uh, treatment facilities, substance use disorder treatment facilities. And so in order to carry out my research agenda, uh, I need partners. And so um, and I, uh, in the 
so not only do academic folks need community partners, community partners need academic folks. And so uh, uh, when I arrived at uh, Washington University in St. Louis in 2012, when I was uh, hired there, uh, the first thing I did was basically just Googled uh, addiction treatment in St. Louis. And uh, luckily I landed on a, a program, it's uh, Bridgeway Behavioral Health uh, at the time, and uh, I met the CEO there, who uh, Mike Morrison, who is a person in recovery. He was a heroin addict, uh, and he's been in long-term recovery. And he and I hit it off, and uh, and so we strategically went around to different uh, treatment facilities, and we thought we need the whole continuum of care from detox all the way to long-term care in this space to figure out how to best leverage science. Uh, technology, and those sort of things to up our game, right, to really up the treatment game. And this was really early in the opioid epidemic. So we sort of worked together, and um, uh, just uh, we both have resources, and we share those, and I teach in those communities. So social workers go to those communities, and I hold classes uh, there. And we also um, provide research and what's the best, what's the best treatment. Uh, if they have a special case, we try to help those folks out. Great. And are there other organizations or partnerships that you uh, that are making strong headway around these issues um, of the opioid epidemic or substance abuse that people should be aware of? I think so. There's an effort now to to create this system of care. So from emergency rooms to hospitals to community-based practice to housing, uh, they're all trying to figure out how to work together and not just work in these silos, which is hard to do because we fund things in silos. And so um, uh, it's a very difficult thing because they all have their own electronic health record systems and, and so they work independently and trying to figure out how to work across uh, is a challenge, but it's part of the effort CAPA tries to do, and I think other communities are trying to figure that out as well. So you mentioned earlier that this is an incredibly complex issue, and, and for schools, this is a complex issue to deal with. How should educators start navigating the process of understanding and, and learning about opioid-related issues that their students are dealing with, oftentimes with these issues happening outside of school? Right. Again, it's a challenge. And we're asking educators uh, to deal with things that socially. And, um, and so you would have folks who would say educators need to educate. And if there is a problem, they need to refer to the appropriate folks. But oftentimes, uh, uh, insurance, uh, there's, the resources that are needed oftentimes are not available. There has to be this, and I'm going to do a prevention plug for my prevention folks, is that there has to be this effort. We have, uh, in the past years, from uh, we've lowered tobacco use. Uh, pretty much everybody uses a seatbelt. Uh, and all this was done through messaging and prevention. And unfortunately, not a lot of dollars uh, goes towards uh, prevention. Not just students who are high risk, but students, just regular students. Uh, and so we didn't talk about this, but uh, there was just an $8 billion uh, bill signed by the president. Congress came out to deal specifically with opioids. It's a nice start. 
but uh, you know, HIV and AIDS, we spend about $24 billion a year uh, for that. And I'm not saying it's a drop in the bucket, uh, but we need a whole lot more money and resources uh, if we're going to be serious uh, about this. And we're going to have to do real prevention in our schools. Uh, fortunately, things like DARE, uh, everybody knows about DARE. Uh, it's nice for police, uh, but we don't have police come in and talk about other, other medical illnesses. I don't know why we have police come in and talk about substance use disorder. It sends a bad message that this must be bad because cops are in here talking to us about alcohol and drugs. But also, it's, it hasn't been proven by science to be effective. And so um, I think we need to be smarter uh, with our prevention money. So how can teachers support, specifically teachers, uh, mm. in their classroom and, and then throughout the school building, beyond their classroom, a student who faces these issues, opioid-related issues, either from their own years or, again, from the use of a family member or friend? So if they become aware of that, um, obviously there needs to be this space where this young person can talk about it, where they feel safe talking about it. Uh, I was trained not to share my family's experience with, with anybody outside the family. And so I really had to trust somebody to talk about what was going on in my household. And oftentimes it was not a teacher, right? And so, but there are uh, positions in schools that are not teaching positions, uh, social workers or whatever they uh, might call them, that there has to be this connection, right? And um, uh, there has to be, uh, we talk about being Carl Rogers, uh, being empathetic, genuine, uh, those non-judgmental. Uh, as soon as I sniffed out somebody was going to judge me, I was done. And so uh, I think a lot of uh, young folks will see that too. So there has to be somebody in their life or in that building that can uh, be approachable. How can school leaders, superintendents, and principals create effective support systems in their schools and districts for students who are dealing with, with these issues? I think uh, talking about it, um, not ignoring what's going on in our communities. It's, it's hard for anybody in our community not to be impacted by what's going on with opioids. There's, it's, it's so widespread. So just creating spaces where uh, young people can speak and talk. Uh, and not, uh, because what's not talked about is an indication that it's, there's some stigma related to that. So just being open uh, about that and being aware of what's going on. And, and when, if there is a death or something that happens, to have these wraparound uh, services for uh, young, po young folks. Um, uh, so they can uh, deal with those. And for those who, when you say wraparound services, what are some, some examples of what a school might be implementing to, to enact some of those? Experienced social worker uh, who knows community resources that if there are things outside of the school that the school's not providing, that they're, that they're aware of uh, where they can send folks to. Uh, so I would say just resource uh, uh, experience. So what do you see, and you start to mention this, you mentioned the amount of money that's been invested uh, recently by Congress and by the, the, the administration. Uh, what do you see as the next steps for implementing large-scale policies 
uh, and educational practices or school practices that will support students who are affected by the use of opioids and, again, the use of opioids in their family and friends. Right, so I, I would say just like we've done with seatbelt, with smoking, uh, it has to be these large campaigns of prevention. It's going to cost billions of dollars. What's important to us as Americans, we fund, right? And um, again, if you've watched, the reason I keep bringing up 60 Minutes, there was a, a, a episode on uh, that last night where there was an attorney that uh, led the tobacco settlement. And he indicates that there could be hundreds of billions of dollars that's going to come from pharmaceutical companies to pay for the damage that they've done. I'm speaking, I'm not saying it, I'm repeating what he said. And that these dollars have to go down to prevention at the, at the level of young people from kindergarten on, right, uh, in order to address this. It has to start with our young folks. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for, again, for sharing your story. And I... I think it, it sounds like we're starting to make those first steps of, of awareness, talking about it and funding it, but we have a long way to go. Again, our guest is Dr. David Patterson Silverwolf. He's a professor at Brown School at, the, at Washington University in St. Louis, a faculty scholar in Washington University Institute for Public Health, a faculty affiliate in the Center for Violence and Injury Prevention, and director of the Community Academic Partnership on Addiction. It was great to have you here on Critical Window. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Window, the Alliance for Excellent Education's podcast on how the research from the science of adolescent learning can inform middle and high school design and the work of school leaders. Tell your colleagues, friends, and families about Critical Window, and please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to make sure you catch future episodes. This podcast was produced by Aharon Charnov, Hans Herman, and Robin Harper. To learn more about the science of adolescent learning, visit all4ed.org slash S-A-L.